Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, an independent review of the violent incidents around Pride last year in Hamilton have been released. The discussion will be diverse. The Prime Minister is facing a backlash for attending a demonstration while telling Parliament it's unsafe to resume. Could he have not taken a knee virtually? And are we more fearful of a second wave than we were the first? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. An independent review of the violent incidents that took place at Pride last year in Hamilton were released yesterday. It says that the Hamilton Police Service's response to violence was inadequate. Uh, The police have released their report, which uh, I would say says a different view of this. Now, we've obviously asked the Hamilton Police Service and Mayor Fred Eisenberger to comment on this. Uh, However, uh, they are going to reserve their judgment until after the Police Services Board meeting, which happens on Thursday. Let's bring in Cameron Kretsch, community member associated with Pride Hamilton and is with us now. Cameron, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thanks very much. So your thoughts on this independent review and what it is saying? The independent review is uh, a pretty clear in terms of its scope. It really looks at systemically what's happened uh, to contribute to uh, the police's response to Pride last year, both before Pride, during Pride, and after Pride. And so it's something that uh, takes a more holistic approach and comes from someone totally outside of uh, the service, right? totally outside of Hamilton, um, lawyers who have looked at the situation independently interviewed dozens of people. Contrasted to the report that was done internally by a Hamilton Police Services officer that says, um, unsurprisingly, that everything's fine and they did nothing wrong. The independent reviewers uh, have come forward with their report, which is scathing um, and calling out police for being inept um, and for, as you say, inadequately um, doing their jobs. Uh, how do you explain uh, the contrast in the di- in these two different reports? What's the difference? Well, the first report, which um, frankly the police have been sitting on since they received it in December of 2019, I'll leave that there, um, is written by uh, not the OIPRD, but an officer of the Hamilton Police Service. It's an internal report. Essentially, it's an echo chamber, Scott, that says, hey, we looked at ourselves, and concluded we didn't do anything wrong. Uh, we think everything's fine over here. Versus the independent report, which went out, interviewed members of the community, talked to members of the police. Um, it comes from a group of lawyers who've been doing this kind of independent reporting, who commented on uh, police actions in Thunder Bay, and have released other kinds of reports. So one is independent of the police, and the other is from the police. We've obviously heard the term systematic uh, problems, whether it's to do with racism, whether it's to do with the situation of pride, what have you, uh, involving the police. H- how do you explain this? How do you how do you define this? H- how do you uh, how do you explain it to to those who may not understand what's going on? Really simply put, Scott, um, what this report and the testimony from communities for decades and centuries has been saying is that um, adding more money to police budgets and increasing police presence doesn't make communities safe, it doesn't protect communities, and that there are mechanisms out there, there are services out there that are proven to protect and keep communities safe, and that's where allocations of resources should be, so that police departments should be defunded 
and the, the funding divested from police departments and reallocated to social services, affordable housing, transit, and so many other areas that are neglected in municipal budgets. And that putting all this money toward policing isn't working, hasn't been working, has never worked. And that these systems are designed to replicate that kind of unsafe environment for people who are most most vulnerable, frankly, most made most vulnerable by um, those systems. So is it the personnel within the system? Is it the police within the system? Or is the system doesn't allow itself to evolve here? That's a good question and something I think people are thinking about vis-a-vis what happened with uh, Mark Saunders, who resigned as chief of him of the Toronto Police Service. You know, is, is the resignation of the chief of police going to solve the problem? And my answer is no. Um, if Chief Gert should be removed by the board or should resign, the system will replicate another chief in his place. And that's not necessarily going to change things. So tools that are used, the culture, the chain of command, all these kinds of ideas um, are really part of a systemic uh, police system that is not designed to keep communities safe. And one of the things that this report talks about deeply is police culture and about how that police culture continues to contribute. Again, it's not about 45 minutes of what happened at Pride or an hour long of what happened at Pride. This is about things the police have done before, had a long history, um, back to the 90s, with Pride um, in Hamilton, and going forward, what happened after Pride, the chief's careless comments on the radio, and other kinds of things the police did after Pride with uh, the arrests and things they did that contributed to adding more and more precarity and making more and more spaces unsafe for the people that are made marginalized by these systems. Um, so how do you how do you alter that culture? Uh, again, going back to my initial question, is, is it the staff? Is it the the women and men of the Hamilton Police Service or any police service? Are, are, are they prejudiced? Are they racist? Do they have preconceived views of of of, of uh, the gay community, for example? I mean, is it an individual thing, or can they not help it being in the system that they're in? It's more the latter than the former. I think that you could certainly try and individualize this and start pointing to individual officers and saying, hey, this person feels this way and this person feels another way. And there are certainly folks in the police services on either side of that equation, like there are out in the general public. This is a system. And if we look to what black leaders and black community voices are saying right now, they're calling for defunding police and allocating those resources in a way that ensures that they're being put to better use. So that's the that's where I'm at. Uh, that's where a lot of people are at. Pride signed on to their petition. Many of their groups have signed on to these petitions as well to say that, that the system itself and policing itself is the problem. It's the culture of policing. Um, and it's not down to trying to individualize this and say, you know, some, some of your audience may be thinking, well, I know someone and they're a nice, uh, nice person and they're a police officer. It's not about that. It's not yeah. about the good deeds that are being done on, daily, on the daily here. It's about a system that is designed to increase danger, frankly, to communities um, who rely on them for safety. 
So how do you fix this? And, you know, we've heard the word defund, uh, and some are confused at that. Uh, This isn't about the abolishment of the police service. This is about taking money that is provided for them for social services and put them more directly towards those social services. But, you know, like I can think of the example of, you know, with Hamilton Police Service and, and, and their initiative to bring uh, mental health workers with them on the scene if they need uh, that sort of help uh, during a call of some sort, because obviously we're asking them to do things that in some situations they're just not qualified for. So when you say defund the police, what do you take away? What do you remove? Do you take Probably. away? Do you take away those services that people have been demanding for a long time that that delve more into mental health? Do you say, okay, you know what, we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, we're going to take that money away and put it somewhere else. Where do you where do you take the money from? I think that's a better question to ask here, Scott. If I could be direct, is do you need to be bringing guns to a mental health situation? Someone's got a crisis they're going through, and Desmond Cole has written a book, uh, The Skin More Inch, which I think everybody should read, which talks about some of these things that have been happening in um, in Ontario and in Toronto for years uh, recently. You don't need to have armed police officers who, frankly, don't have mental health support training showing up to a situation um, armed and ready to act. So now um, the question that I'm asking, but I'm, the question I'm asking, Cameron, is do you take that money? Like when you say defund police, you're taking money away. So you're removing something. What is it that you remove? Do you remove all of those services that they've uh, implemented in the last little while, whether they're successful or not? Uh, for example, delving into mental health, do you say, okay, you know what? We're not going to run any of those programs anymore. We're going to stop those, and we're going to take that money and put it right into the community. So then when a police officer arrives at this call, uh, that training that was supposed to be there isn't there anymore. Then who fills that void? There are hundreds of professionals in Hamilton who are qualified to intervene in mental health situations. And I would say based on what I've learned and based on what I've read, that the Hamilton Police Service is not in a position to be offering mental health services to the community. The individual officers you'll find if you look into their training, and if you read this report, which talks about it extensively, aren't qualified to be intervening in situations to provide... Who, who is who is Cameron? And the are those mental people... Health professionals in our hang community. on a sec. And uh, are those people on the front line and available to do that? How like That's what I'm asking. How do we do that? They are on the front line, but they're often on the front line in situations where they're completely underfunded. So do, should, should we set up dollar. so should we set up a system for example where there's a staff of mental health people on standby and then they get called out to these scenarios is that again I'm just looking for a solution here. Yeah, I'm, I'll get to that. Exactly. That's exactly the kind of thing that needs to happen. You take the 171 million dollars being paid to police right now and you look and compare that to the $148 million being paid for all social services. And yes, you defund those police services and you set up systems that work to keep communities safe. And you do have to recruit and then pay mental health professionals to be on the front lines providing those services. Right now, I can tell you, groups like Keeping Six, HamSmart, Urban Core, there are tons of them who are on the front lines every single day in our streets taking care of and helping people to keep them safe. And they're completely underfunded when we look at the police, the city's budget compared to the police. Those funds need to be put into place with the people who have the expertise, the lived experience, and the connection with communities 
to be able to deliver these services in a safe and accessible way. And that's not going to happen if we keep continuing to increase police budgets and give money to police to provide these services. They're not on the front lines of those situations, and many of the officers are not trained to undertake those kinds of services. So basically, police would just be doing crime type of things. They would not be doing anything uh, related to social work or uh, mental health or any of that sort of situation. I mean, that makes sense to me. They're not social workers. And I'm not saying here that I have the blueprint for you, Scott, of exactly step-by-step how we do this. And there's no sort of quick Band-Aid release here where we can say, like, literally tomorrow um, this can all be implemented. The process of defunding um, a systemically entrenched organization like the police is going to take a few minutes. Yeah. Um, how, so, so how, in the interim, what's the solution here? How do we move forward? For example, with what's happening with Pride, how do we move forward here? Well, I think that a couple things, um, talking about relativity, the Pride Board has certainly been looking at this report, which came out yesterday, is 124 pages, has 38 recommendations. And for those who don't know, we're talking about Pride. We're talking about a very small organization of volunteers, so no staff, and a very, very limited budget in the thousands. So folks over there are doing their work, myself included, to come up with a response and to figure out what exactly we do and how we respond to this report. Um, the report, though, mentions 38 recommendations for the police. So I think that um, we're going to have to look to see how the Hamilton Police Services Board, Mayor Eisenberger, Councillor Jackson, Councillor Collins, and the rest of the members on that board, how they respond um, to these allegations and uh, recommendations made in this report, and what they're prepared to do about it. Because at this point, it's really actions that matter. They can keep putting out statements about statements, um, saying that they're going to you know, consider this and consider that. But until they decide they're going to put some actions into play, it's very difficult for folks um, in communities to respond to this. Um, how do you think police departments are reacting to this across the country? You see a variety of reactions, I think. I mean, the Toronto Police Department, certainly, with the resignation of Mark Saunders, um, their chief is certainly taking one kind of approach to this. Um, I haven't heard a reaction from the Hamilton Police Services Department, you know, so I'm not sure what they're doing at all. At this point, we'll find out after the board meeting on Thursday. You saw it's happening in Minneapolis um, and how... Uh, they're literally dismantling their police department. So I think there are a variety of responses here. A lot of um, police departments are taking what I can see publicly, a kind of wait-and-see approach. I think a lot of them will be watching what happens in Hamilton. Um, This is uh, certainly a report that is unique and makes a lot of very, very damning statements and some pretty uh, long-list recommendations. And so I think we'll be looking to see what local folks have to say after the Hamilton Police Services Board on Thursday. Cameron Kretsch has been with us, community member associated with Pride Hamilton. Independent review of the violent incidents at Pride last year in Hamilton was released yesterday, and it says that the Hamilton police response to uh, to the violence was inadequate. Cameron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. And we should also mention that uh, we did uh, invite the Hamilton Police Service and uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger on over the last uh, couple of days, and they have reserved judgment on any of this until the Police Services Board meeting on Thursday. So we'll find out what happens then. Uh, the Hamilton Wetworth School Board has decided that they will be reviewing the Police School Liaison Program. To talk more about all of this, Alex Johnstone is with us, trustee and chair of the Hamilton Wetworth District School Board. And Alex is with us now. Alex, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good day, Scott. 
So how did you arrive at the decision that it's uh, time to review this? Mm-hmm. So th- this conversation actually started um, back in February. So uh, listeners may recall that uh, a group of students and former students had uh, gone to City Hall and uh, put together a list of items of changes that they wanted to see within the school board, within the education system. So from that point, that's where our director, as well as um, uh, some of our superintendents and staff, uh, began engaging in conversations with uh, with students. And from there, we had, um, unfortunately, we had COVID hit. So a lot of that work was put on pause. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, conversations had started to resume again. And then, of course, that is uh, when we had uh, the death of George Floyd. Uh, with that and with um, really the issue being brought to the forefront globally around concerns around anti-Black racism, um, that is uh, where we had trustee, uh, one of our trustees, uh, Maria Felix Miller, bring forward a motion to review the uh, our police liaison officer program and last night our board had a discussion on on that very item and what did you arrive at so we had a unanimous um, uh, vote in favor of having a review of the police liaison officer program um, all trustees were on the same page I think that uh, we all have a lot of questions around what the program entails um, what uh, what the rules are, what the expectations are, what the measurements are of success. So there was a number of questions around the board table last night uh, with regards to what trustees wanted to see go into the review, as well as what whose voices would be part of uh, that review uh, in terms of collecting. Uh, feedback from students, from parents, so ensuring that all those voices uh, are accounted for. We also had an amendment uh, to the motion, uh, to the main motion last night that was presented on the floor. So that meant that um, it was not previously distributed in the board package. It came up uh, as the conversation was coming, I guess, going around the board table. The amendment was to pause the program while the review uh, was being complete. That did not have unanimous uh, consent. and That was voted down. Um, when I reflect back on the discussion last night, uh, in terms of um, in terms of that, I think what we what we heard or what I certainly heard was that um, uh, about half the trustees had arrived and they were. Uh, prepared to have that conversation around pausing the program. Uh, the other half of the trustees were not prepared for that conversation to come to the floor. They had only been prepared to speak to the main motion, which they were aware of. And so that's where um, uh, there was, a, I guess, a discussion that was had and the amended motion did not proceed. So at the end of the night, there was unanimous uh, consent to review the police liaison program. Uh, we will talk to you about this again in the future, Alex, but we are in limited time here. Um, why do some not want uh, the police there? And is stopping the engagement with them the answer? Mm-hmm. So I think uh, we've heard a wide variety of concerns over the last uh, few days. And um, uh, we've also we've heard 
many different voices from um so we've heard from parents and students um who do not feel comfortable when police are in the schools we've also heard the reverse um that uh there's also on the same i guess tone there is a call to have uh to have more supports in the school i think that is education as educators and as leaders as education it's our role to to find a way to serve all those needs which can sometimes be very challenging scott um but that is that's what we owe our students at this point that we need to uh find a way to um ensure that although there was a vote last night this conversation certainly does not end um that uh, that we have a lot of work ahead of us uh certainly with the review um and uh but also in the coming uh days and weeks um and to ensure that that we are meeting student needs similar to the bullying review where we uh promised that we would uh not um that we would address concerns as they arise, uh, that we ask students continue to report um, acts of bullying. The same uh, needs to occur here and that uh, we, need to, we need to ensure that we're taking every single step um, uh, to, to ensure that our students are feeling supported. And part of that right now is uh, ensuring that we have a review that provides trustees with the answers and information they need in order to make an informed decision. Alex Johnstone has been with us, trustee and chair of the Hamilton Mountworth District School Board. Alex, we'll invite you back to talk about this uh, in more length. It's obviously a very complex program. Uh, talking about reviewing the police school liaison program. Alex, uh, tough job, tough times ahead of you. Good luck with all of this. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in uh, Tim Powers, political commentator, managing director of Abacus Data and vice chairman of Summa Strategies. Talk some politics and everything that is going on in the world that we are now living in, which seems very heavy right now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Doing okay, Scott. Same with you. Good to talk to you. Tim, let's chat about where the country is today. We're, uh, what, 13 weeks into a pandemic. Uh, then, obviously, the tragic death of George Floyd has brought up uh, all sorts of social unrest and, and demonstration and such. Your thoughts about where Canada is right now? Uh, honestly, I think it depends on the day, if you look at it from an individual perspective. Last week, I think, was tough for a lot of people, certainly uh many uh many canadians many black canadians and canadians uh of uh, broad diversity uh and and uh and all, all of us watching what was happening across the border seeing the impact that it had here and uh ripping rightly open the band-aid of uh discussions on on racism and how it exists in different systems across the country and uh, I think that was tough, uh, but important uh, for a lot of people. Then, of course, the ongoing pandemic and some relief in Ontario, at least. I guess we're now moving to phase two. At least we are here in Ottawa. I don't know if you are in Hamilton, but... Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. Well, Scott, you can, you can come down and get a haircut. i got a tent <laughs> in the backyard for you. You'll be fine. Oh, but, uh, you know, I, I think people are wearing a little thin uh, with all of that, too. And I think, again... Personal mental health is up and down depending on the day and uh, and, and what you've uh, you've been doing. So I think that's generally where people are. 
In regard to the Floyd, uh, the George Floyd debate uh, and discussion, a conversation that needs to be had, it's painful for all of us to watch that eight minutes and 46 seconds. Is it different this time? Will we see change? And we've, you know, we've been hearing about systemic racism. Is, is something different here? I don't know, um, is the honest answer. Uh, look, I think it's it's more, and maybe people are having more time to reflect and address some of the, some of the uh, uh, matters that are being brought up about how there is systemic racism because of, of the pandemic. Maybe there is a benefit in that, that because we are locked down and we're uh, confined and we're not engaged in our everyday lives. We're learning more, we're seeing more, we're hearing more, and it makes us think more, I hope. Does it change actions on an immediate basis? Uh, maybe a little bit now. Will it alter things in the long term? Again, it's a, it's another key issue that needs to be dealt with. But Scott, only, what, two weeks ago we were talking about, you know, how we needed to focus on looking after our seniors because of what we've seen through COVID. So, hmm. Which takes priority? I mean, they, they all should take priority. Um, but but what steps to the fore um, as we move forward? Uh, is the critici- uh, criticisms of the police services across the country, let's keep the United States out of this, um, yeah. but across this country, is it valid? Can we ignore this anymore? I think we have to be careful about generalizing. Um, yeah. I, I think, look, uh, Canadian Police are not immune uh, to having people in their police service who commit criminal activities uh, and abuse people uh, in, in of, of different backgrounds and, and are, are, are racist. Uh, but equally, uh, there are uh, legions more, I believe, and many of them are friends of mine, police officers who are uh, good police officers who care about their society, who uh, don't met out grades of justice and law enforcement based on the color of the skin of the people that they're dealing with. I, I, you know, this whole argument of defunding the police, I think, geez, we better be careful what we're, what we think we're asking for here. Um, I mean, we do need a police service. Do we need more special officers or, or others who uh, are able to deal with people who have mental health and wellness issues? For sure we do. But again, let's, let's you know, dig into this for sure. Let's not avoid the discussion. Let's get into it. But let's not react the wrong way either. And let, let's not tarnish good police officers, men and women, uh, who do work, who, like their counterparts in the U.S., believe in people's right to express themselves, who want to treat people properly. Let's not tarnish them uh, with uh, with the brush of, of, of bad apples. Not to say there aren't many uh, bad apples. Certainly we have more than we would like, but let's not tarnish everybody. Uh, you talked about the movement to uh, defund uh, police. Uh, we've been talking about that uh, for a good portion of the show. And my question is, where, at what department, at what section of the police do you pull that funding from? Because we're always asking them to do more when it comes to mental health, uh, cybersecurity, terrorism, what have you. Um, on the other hand, we, we've got... Uh, uh, also, the demand from some for body cameras, uh, including the prime minister saying he wanted to talk to the premiers about this. Again, a project that costs millions and millions of dollars. Is this defunding the police? 
I, I, I don't know. Again, it's about priorities, right? So if you if you go, I, I heard the police chief here or a deputy police chief here talking about, you know, body cams. I believe the figure was right, and Ottawa would would cost another two million dollars or, or something to that effect. So just for the Ottawa Police Service. Um, so if you spend the two million on body cams, uh, where does that two million come from? What do you take away from it? So is is it not so much a matter of defunding, but you know you could be limiting other services on the ground patrols in in neighborhoods where youth are at risk. You you know, so you got to make choices, right? I mean, uh, body cams uh seemingly could add to transparency but you can still have people with malintent who are going to wear body cams and wearing a body cam is not going to stop them from uh from conducting themselves in a in an inappropriate manner might lead to some thinking about it but uh, you're still going to get bad apples whether they have body cams on or not right all right, let's uh, talk about another issue in regard uh, to this, and that be the demonstrations. We yeah. saw the Prime Minister uh, on Friday um, go down and take a knee at one of the demonstrations. Some are saying that's hypocritical when he says he can't resume Parliament for uh, safety reasons. Uh, your thoughts on this? I mean, I, I've seen some politicians in the United States who have done this virtually uh, with other members of their council and staff and such. Um, could the Prime Minister not have done that? He could have. Um, look, I think it's a fair discussion. Uh, the Ottawa mayor went, for example, and uh, he, he's been also equally telling people here, Jim Watson, good man, uh, you know, follow the directions, keep your distance, do all of that. Uh, they all went because, uh, you know, it, clearly it's a it's a an important, crucial issue. Black Lives Matter. And the moment we talked, the moments we talked about last week and how they were catalyzing last week. Uh, political leaders wanted to be front and center. Um, yeah, I look, I think legitimate questions are raised around it. My, my caution would be that some of the political opponents of the prime minister, like Andrew Scheer and others, be careful how you deal with it, though, too, right? I think uh, you... It's a no-win situation. Yeah, it's a no-win situation. You look petty, you play to the other side of it. Like, uh, yeah, I, I look, I, I think last week was an exceptional circumstance. I think, though, now, as you're starting to see, um, you have an impatient public who's saying, all right, we get it was an exceptional circumstance, but now that that's happened and uh, and we haven't seen yet any evidence that there was uh, any any COVID outbreaks in any of these protests, so we're probably still a few days too early for that. Can we not speed up the opening? So I think where it's going to go is, all right, if we, you can have protests like that, can we not do other things that are equally important to us as individuals? Do you think the protests, and some have commented on this, we don't have too much time left, do you think the yeah. protests will be a Petri dish for COVID-19? And by that respect, if we come out the other end and things are relatively safe from, for, from or, you know, two weeks from now, then we're pretty much in the clear. However, if it's the other, uh, then we may see some, some reduction. But uh, will we have a hard time keeping people inside if two weeks from now, after lots of gathering, people are fine? 
Yes. I mean, you're seeing that already, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've seen lots of people out already. Again, most of them are adhering to the practices. They're wearing masks or they're six feet and people are being responsible. Again, don't know about, I just saw some visuals from the protests in Toronto. Here in Ottawa, there was some, some social distancing, harder to do, uh, given the confined space that it was in. But yeah, I think, look, if there isn't a big outbreak, and let's hope that there's not, uh, there will be pressure to ratchet up more openings. Will we get over this? All of it? We're, we're resilient people. We'll get over it. But I think the question is, what lessons do we take from it and what do we focus on? And do we become better uh, uh, people as a consequence mm. of it? I, you know, yeah, we'll get over it. We're tough. Uh, but what are the lessons? I think that's still to be written. Well said. Tim Powers is with us, political commentator, managing director of Abacus Data and vice chairman of Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care, buddy. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Fear of a second wave. A poll released today says that many Canadians are in fear of a second wave of the COVID-19 virus. And also, uh, the use of masks is increasing. Let's talk about our mental health. Christine Purden is with us, professor in the Department of Psychology, University of Waterloo, and is with us now. Christine, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm well, thank you. First of all, your thoughts of where we are uh, after uh, 13 weeks of this. I remember week two, three, four, and then it all seems to meld together. How has our perception of all of this changed? So I think um, at the beginning of it, I think we just didn't know what was going to happen. And so we had seen all of the horrific images from Italy. We started to see the images from New York City with bodies in refrigerated trucks and, and such. And I think we just didn't know how this was going to hit us here. So I think a lot of people were just, there was this, uh, I think, a real period of in- incredible tension. And so far, we seem to have come through the other side of that without the same kind of uh, crises that we saw in other places. And now we're just sort of now on pause waiting what's going to happen next. Now that the economy is reopening again, it's like, is there going to be a second wave? Are we going to have to you know, just get used to kind of getting back to normal again and then suddenly have to retreat back into our homes. So I think we're back in a period of pause, maybe with not quite the same fear and trepidation we might have had at the beginning of all this. How fearful are we? Because it seems that some are immobilized by this, don't even want to go out of the house. There's others that just ignore it all. Uh, How fearful are we of this? So I think you're absolutely right that that there's a huge range of of um fear like so I think um and it depends on what you whether it's about like fear of the virus itself or fear of other things. So one of the interesting things for an anxiety researcher is actually that a lot of people are doing quite well. Um and part of it is that you know all their children are home, the children don't have to deal with bullying at school or other kinds of stresses. Uh, parents aren't needing to deal with commute and that sort of thing. Um, and for people with high anxiety, sometimes just knowing what the other shoe is is helpful. So some people I see with anxiety are actually fine. It's like they say, well, I've been waiting forever for what the next shoe is going to be, and now I know what it is, so we're just dealing with it. Um, but then there are other people who, of course, are stressed out of their minds because they're trying to do a full-time job with children at home, et cetera. But with respect to fear of the virus itself, I think um, – 
it's it, I think it, I haven't seen any um, new research on where the fears are at. I do think that it's just sort of an ever-present danger now in the back of people's heads. I expect that as we start to move into phase two, uh, and if we start to see numbers grow, I think that fear will really start to grow. Are we as fearful of the second wave as we were the first one, That's or, or more so? That's a, it's an excellent question, and I think we're, we may be afraid in different ways. It may be that we're, for the second wave, we're worried about you know, just sort of trying to resume a normal life again and then it getting snatched away. Um, so I think, I think that's a, a serious fear. And for people who have been laid off um, or, or don't have jobs, you know, the fear of uh, you know, getting a, a job again and then having to, that to be taken away again, I think, is pretty raw for people. Um, we all know that, uh, uh, this is, there is no normal here, that, that everything that we knew life as before COVID-19 is very different now. Uh, we've talked many times on the show about uh, on the way up this curb, uh, what it was like, but on the way down, it almost seems more restrictive because it's very, it's very timed. It's very, uh, slow. It, it moves. It's very result driven. Uh, how is it difficult for people to come down the curve thinking that, you know, when it was over, they could just bust out and run through the daisies. Whereas now it's, it's now that we are finally getting out per se, it's not like it was when we, when this all started. Yeah, I think, um, there's very much a sense of, of things still not like, even, even though I've been saying, you know, it's sort of back to normal, but you're right. It's not back to normal. Like we, we can go to a store, but it's, you know, we probably should wear a mask and some stores won't let you in without it and you line up at your two meter distance and you don't really shop so much anymore as you go in and get out, you go in, get what you want and go out. So a lot of the things that were just sort of either neutral or actually fun are actually now quite stressful for people and require a fair bit of planning because you don't know how long you're going to have to wait in order to get into a store. And and I think that there is sort of this continued... um, not suspicion of other people, but wariness of being too close to other people. And um, I saw a little a little girl on our street uh, the other day who uh, her little sister ran sort of in front of us as we were walking without realizing we were there. And the the older sister yelled, "Stop! It's people!" You know, yeah. meaning like get away from people. So I think that um, we we have a different orientation to the people around us. We're uh, we're wary and we're we're wary of contact for sure. So there's an atmosphere, I think, that's out there now that um, didn't used to be. And I think that's going to be around for a while. Um, will will we get back to that? Will we get back to that feeling? Will we get back to that feeling where we where we think we can hug somebody or shake someone's hand? I know. I, even I, even I, when even when it says even when the medical staff say, "Yep, we're good." Even even after vaccine, are we still going to be there? Are we going to want to go there? I know. I I think that'll be um, in order to get back to the kind of relations we had like before or the time before. Um, I I think we we may. I agree with you that it it probably is going to take some time because we've now this has gone on long enough that I think we've all internalized that sense of wariness and a sense of danger, and we've inhibited our own selves from not reaching out to hug our, our relatives out of concern for their safety. Um, and I think that that's going to take a little while to get over. Uh, I don't know if the handshake will ever come back. 
Uh, let's talk about wearing masks. Obviously, when uh, the first stage opened up, uh, the recommendation was if you can't keep your two-meter distance, you're going into a grocery store, what have you, uh, wear a mask uh, if you can't keep that two-meter distance. What about uh, our feeling, how we're feeling about wearing a mask? I mean, I'm not a, a fan of shopping anyway, but now I hate it even more. Um, what, is, how do, what advice do you have for some that are trying to get over this? Yeah, so the mask wearing, I mean, so I think there's been an increase in it, but I, I partly, uh, no doubt, because the um, it's now being recommended. Um, and as you said, so, so stores are, are requiring it. And a lot of people can't tolerate a mask. Uh, they, they, they feel very suffocated and uh, trapped when they're wearing it. Um, and But at the same time, people feel more protected and they feel like they're protecting other people. So I think it's an ambivalent experience for for most people, um, and I think that there's it, it as soon as you put it on, it instantly signals okay, uh, like you can't ignore that you've got it on, and it's instantly yeah. signaling there's a threat out there. And I think it it does cause people to sort of be more anxious, perhaps, and wary and aware than uh, would normally be the case when we're just going about normal errands. Uh, we've, we've seen, uh, people start to get out now and we can visibly see more people outside. We can visibly see, uh, more traffic. Uh, obviously we're also dealing with, uh, social concerns and social unrest in regard to, uh, the tragic death of, of George Floyd. We've seen demonstrations and protests, uh, in regard to that. Many have predicted a second wave will come in a week or two after, uh, these mass demonstrations and such, if it doesn't happen that way and everything's the same, are we going to have a hard time keeping people inside after that experiment? I I think, um, I do think that we, despite the fear of the second wave, it, the, the fear of the second, the second wave is, is such, is still so abstract. I do think that people are habituating, especially now that we're moving into phase two in a lot of areas, I think people are going to be out of their houses more and maybe a bit less vigilant in some ways. Um, And particularly, you're right, if if we've seen, okay, there have been these massive crowds and there hasn't been an outbreak, people might start to say, yeah, well, you know, we really need to get the economy going. I really want to see my, you know, I'm tired of this. I want to get out. So, yeah, I think I do think that's a real possibility. I think you're absolutely right that what happens in the next uh, week or two could really inform how people orient to social distancing. Uh, we certainly have talked about demographics on this show and in regard to COVID-19 and, and who it affects, who it doesn't affect or as much per se. Um, interesting stats coming out of Hamilton uh, this week saying 43% of the new cases in the last 10 days are people 20 and under. Uh, talk about the generational aspect of this. I think it's um, now that the weather, the nice weather is out, We've people have been in quarantine for a long time. Y- younger people have a lot of energy and they didn't, they, you know, living your life in your parents' home uh, is not really the life, your best life if you're 19 hmm. for a lot of people. So I do think... Uh, that's part of the issue, but also uh, younger people are, are more likely. The demographic of protesters tends to skew a little bit younger as well, so they are getting out and about. Um, and young people tend to, the idea of illness and death is is uh, more abstract for the younger generation than it is for older generations. 
So, and they may not have, you know, an elderly parent or grandparent who is really vulnerable or who, who actually has suffered with a disease or illness. So I think that there can be a sense of invincibility and, uh, and, and a, a youthful sense of optimism. Uh, on the note of optimism, uh, when you think about the last week or two uh, in the country, uh, uh, obviously we're dealing with a, uh, a pandemic. We're into week 13 of that, plus add on the social unrest of, of the George Floyd uh, tragic death and such. Um, it seems like there's a lot of bad news out there. What advice do you have for people on coping with this? It seems like, boy, every day it's getting worse at times. Yeah, and I think of the, the meme that's going around that shows a scene from Back to the Future, and, and it says, rule number one, do not set to 2020. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, right, it's just sort of this unending stream of bad news. And I do think that what's absolutely critical is that there, there is, there are unending um, serious issues happening around us right now, and that we can burn out very quickly if we can, if we focus on those constantly. And so, my biggest piece of advice is for people to choose one or two really reliable news sources, check on in on those once in the morning, maybe once later in the day, and otherwise stay away from it. Um, you, if something major happens, you'll definitely hear about it, but. Try to focus on what you can control in your own sphere. Try to enjoy life despite what's happening. That doesn't mean to dishonor or ignore or, or trivialize what's happening, but you can still live, you can still enjoy your garden, you can play with your pets, you can enjoy your children um, despite what's happening. And I think if we don't do that, we're going to burn out and then we're not going to be able to even solve the problems in our own sphere of control very well. Uh, you said something interesting, uh, COVID-19 exhaustion. Do you think that's what Canadians are feeling right now? How concerned are you about that exhaustion regarding mental health? Yeah, I do think it's, uh, I think the exhaustion of the complex problem solving um, is is an issue that people have been, you know, they've had to pivot instantly back in March and continually solving these complex problems with no real, like, so for example, trying to figure out, you know, is school going to be back in September? Uh, what am I going to do with my kids now that we don't have summer camp? You know, there's just this, you know, maybe they'll have day camp, maybe they won't. So I do think that a lot of people are, are feeling overwhelmed and exhausted and starting to feel a bit of burnout. And that may be too why people are trying to get out in the fresh air and maybe not as socially distancing as much. Um, and I think it's really important for people, again, to recognize, first of all, that, yes, this is an exhausting time, but to be sure to carve out time for things that are non-COVID related and to make sure that your interactions, this is, I think, super important, is that when you're speaking with other people, only devote a sliver of the conversation to COVID, switch the conversation on to things like your garden, your your uh, it, the, the, your music, anything but COVID, so that you c- you don't burn out as much from it, and it you can engage with people in a way that leaves you feeling more positive, because moods are very contagious. So if you call somebody mm. in a real funk and talk about COVID, you can bring them down into a real funk, and vice versa. Whereas if you can you know sort of debrief a little bit, vent a little bit, but move into something positive and engaging, you can both come away from the conversation feeling energized and happy again. Can we take advantage of this situation? Is there something to be learned here rather than oh, here's what we can't do. What can we do? Uh, is this an opportunity? 
So I think that we've all learned a lot. Like, it's really interesting. I mean, certainly we've we've learned a lot about our capacity to adapt and cope. Um, we've learned about our, our ability to sacrifice uh, to, to a large extent. Um, we've learned about our ability to manage highly stressful situations for a very long period of time. I think that, too, what a, what a lot of people are noticing is just how much we've been able to reach out and care about other people. And uh, I think that's a nice lesson that I don't think, I think people will continue recognizing just how rewarding it is to, to turn outward from yourself and and take care of your community. Uh, and I think those will be nice lasting things. I think we've learned about the impact of uh, cars and air travel on the environment. If you look at the pictures of Venice with dolphins back in the canals, um, I think we've, so I think we, we have, a, it, this gave us a pause uh, it has had some absolutely tragic consequences, and it has created real a real economic problem. And I do think, though, that there are a few things, like you said, that we can learn. It's given us a sense of pause, and it's helped us prioritize our values, and it's given an opportunity to do things differently once everything starts to uh, uh, get back in motion. Uh, we've talked many times on the show about uh, before COVID-19, what a divisive world it appeared we were living in, uh, life around the extremes, uh, this side or that side, you, you were either on one or the other. Is this uniting us in any way? I think that uh, I, certainly I, there's a lot of um, evidence that communities are, are sort of working together, so putting together community gardens um, setting up community networks and helping each other, like, you know, is, I'm, I'm headed here to the store, does anybody need anything, I'll pick it up for you, or I'm out of flour, does anybody have any? So really um, sort of organizing at a community level in a way I think may not have been the case before. Um, and I love the community gardens, the um, community support uh, kinds of things that are happening so I think um, I, I really hope that that outlives the uh, the whole COVID crisis. We've certainly uh, lived a smaller life as a result of this. Watched our lives shrink and our interaction shrink and such. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my wife a few weeks into this, and and thinking, you know, this isn't bad because none of this other stuff counts anymore. Uh-huh. Do, does it? Do you think we'll keep? Do you think that will stay with us, or once everything gets back to normal, whatever that is, that'll go out the window? You know, I think it's really interesting. I, I'm interested to see what happens with employers who have now had a really good experiment about people working at home. Now, it is the case that people have been working at home with children, and uh, so if if when things sort of at the other side of the crisis and kids are back to school. Um, it'll be interesting. I think a lot will depend on how, like, are employers going to want people back in the office nine to five with this grind and the commute and the demands, or are things going to start to, are, are there, is there going to be more trust that employees can get, like leaving pl- employees to their own devices to get the work done? Because I think there's a lot of quality of life that people experience when they have more freedom and flexibility uh, to be in their own homes or, I mean, they can have choice to be in the office as well. But I, I do think it'll it'll be really interesting to see what happens when the economy restarts and uh, the extent to which people are back to work and where they're working and under what conditions. 
Christine Purden has been with us, professor in the Department of Psychology, University of Waterloo, talking about coming down the backside of a curve and a possibly second wave and where our head is in, uh, where our head is at in all of this. Christine, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.